is John Ross. I asked my dad if I could be a part of the show, and all he did was give me this to read. Welcome to the Always Believe in You show with your host, Damon K. Ross. Please enjoy the show. Good afternoon, good evening, or good morning, depending on where you are in the world. You are listening to the Always Believe in You show right here on 21.6 The Net your daily dose of encouragement. Once again, I have a very special show. I've got a very good friend of mine who graduated from high school with me that I'm going to play the interview for. So again, I'm not going to take a lot of time. I'm going to dive right into my youth of the week so we can get on to that exciting interview. My youth of the week is Dilling Malingam, who was at the age of nine, the co-founder of Little MDGs, a nonprofit international development group and youth empowerment organization and an initiative of Jamie's Fund. Little MDGs mission was to leverage the power of the digital media to engage children in the United Nations Millennium Development Goals, MDGs. His organization, mobilized more than 3 million children around the globe to work on a variety of issues. With more than 24,000 regular volunteers hailing from 41 countries, Dylan is a youth speaker for the United Nations as well as a chief strategist and project ambassador for Under the Acacia. The recipient of numerous international and national honors, Dylan is in his early 20s, now and is currently working as a software engineer in addition to continuing his work with under the Acacia and the UN. So as you can see, this young man started at a very early age, at the age of nine, making a difference. So again, share these stories with the youth that you work with just so they can understand that age is not a limitation for being able to make a huge impact and doing something significant and wonderful and putting a stamp on the world and really influencing the lives of others. Um, and ladies and gentlemen, those uh, when you see this on YouTube, eventually, promise I'm going to get this going at some point, uh, you'll notice that I'm wearing one of my alwaysbelieveinyou.org shirts, which I just received recently. Just got the store up and going on T-Republic. That is T-Republic, T-E-E, republic.com slash user slash A-B-I-Y show. And you'll see these shirts. And soon I'll have Always Believe in You show A-B-I-Y shirts and the likes. And it's not only these T-shirts. There's different blends of T-shirts, but you can also get tank tops, long sleeve shirts, sweatshirts, uh, hoodies, kids' uh, kids t-shirts, onesies for your uh, little ones. And also, there are also coffee mugs, uh, clip art, tote bags. Uh, what else is on there? A uh, few other items. I don't feel like pulling up the site right now. But uh, you can go there and get those items as well. And any of you out there who are business owners who would like to get into merchandising, uh, contact me and I'll, I'll get you a code where you can start your own store on T-Republic and you know start advertising and, and selling merchandise yourself. I do want to, uh, before I go on, during this interview, uh, which was recorded a few weeks ago when I was in St. Louis, there was a change to one of the shows on the lineup. So I do want to point that out. The Beautifully Broken show is now called Be Encouraged. So when you go to look up on the site on 21.6thenet.com, when you go look on the site and look at the lineup, if you're looking for Beautifully Broken for when that is aired, it's actually called Be Encouraged now. So you can find that there. And I also wanted, want to give a shout out to the sponsors for the station which are NIW Services, cleaning one pane at a time is kind of, I'm not as smooth as Kent is when he does the uh, readings, but NIW, NIW Services specialize in residential window cleaning customized to your specifications, cleaning up one pane at a time, and is located in Northern Illinois, in the Northern Illinois region. So if you're in that region, you need some windows cleaned or some gutters cleaned out. They do power washing and window tinting as well. They can be reached at www.niwservice.com or you can call them at 815-385-6646. 
another sponsor is Sticker Dude, which is the studio where Two Ball Guys and a Microphone records from and airs from. Sticker Dude is a... Uh, the owner of Luke is a really cool guy, but a sticker dude, no matter what your vision is for advertising with vinyl wraps, we can provide the design and they can be reached at www.stickerdude.com or by phone 815-322-2480. And last and certainly not least is Natural Therapy Wellness Center. Take care of you, relax, restore, and rejuvenate. If you're looking for um, a therapeutic massage, that's the place to go. And they can be reached at www.mchenrymassage.com or you can call them at 815-385-8190. And I also want to mention during the interview, after I got done, I realized that I did not provide the information or ask for the contact information from my good friend Jason Greer, whose interview you're going to hear in just a moment here. But if you have any needs, uh, he is a consultant who primarily focuses on labor relations, but he also does a very awesome job at doing diversity training. So if you would like to contact him and want to hear more about him after listening to the interview, you can go to www.greerconsultinginc.com. And uh, like I said, Jason has done a really nice job, you know, as a consultant working with many labor forces, helping to resolve labor issues and really has stood out in the field of doing diversity training. Uh, he's made appearances on Great Day St. Louis, as well as WGN in the Chicago land area. So without further ado, let's move along to the interview portion of the show, where our good friend, Mr. Jason Greer, will be providing us with some wonderful information and great conversation. All right, ladies and gentlemen, you are here listening to the Always Believing You show hosted by your truly Demond K. Ross. I am here with a very special guest, a classmate of mine from high school. We graduated, I'm not even going to say the year. Yeah, don't say it, man. Don't say it. <laughs> 1992, we graduated from Lutheran High School North. Uh, Jason is the president and founder of Greer Consulting, Inc. Yes, sir. And... He is a master when it comes to diversity training. Thank you. Of course, I'm going to throw much praise towards him. Uh, so, Jason, how are you doing this evening? I'm doing great, Damon. It's great being here with you. Man, I cannot believe that we met each other when we were kids, and here we are now. I know. This is great. 20-some-odd years later. Right. And uh, I really uh, want to thank you, appreciate you allowing me to come into your workspace and get this interview. Hey, For those you. of you that'll be watching this on YouTube, I'm wearing my family reunion shirt. I came from my family reunion to come to the, to come do this uh, because work never stops. Never, never. Never stops. So uh, Jason, what I would like to do is uh, talk to you uh, a little bit about the diversity training and just talk sure. about the first diversity a little bit because the audience that listens to the show are people that work with youth and young adults. So those are people in the education setting and those are people that, you know, maybe just with youth groups and things. So uh, can you just give us a little glimpse of that portion of what you do? Because I know you do more than that, but just right. for the beginning of the interview, I like to talk a little bit about diversity. So, uh, you know, what are some of the things that you specifically help companies with or organizations with when it comes to diversity? Great. So, I basically, my company, we have the premier diversity training. Uh, it's brain-based diversity training. Okay. And it's fascinating because diversity is such a, you know, it's a hot button issue right now, especially in light of what's happening, you know, in terms of government, policies that are being passed right. down, how that's impacting people from, you know, multiple walks of life. Right. And so uh, you look at what happened to Starbucks with the gentlemen, the two gentlemen who were unfortunately arrested. Uh, because they were sitting there at a Philadelphia, you know, a Starbucks location in Philadelphia. And then, you know, the big term that came out was, um, what was it called? Uh, uh, implicit bias. Yeah. So Starbucks had a whole bunch of implicit bias trainings, which were great. But our perspective on diversity is a lot different than what else is out there. Because we take it from the perspective of, I can tell you, I can sit you down for a three-hour training and I can dazzle you. We have all kinds of fun. You know, we do 
icebreakers, all these different things. And I can leave you with a message of diversity is good. Right. We should embrace it. Everybody high fives. We feel great. And then we walk outside of the training and real life happens. Right. Right. Because we talked in terms of theory. Our diversity training is different because we come from the perspective of we all share one thing, one thing in common. I'm not talking about the fact we're Americans. I'm not talking about the fact that we bleed red. I'm talking about the fact that we all have a brain. At a core level, I don't care who you are. I don't care if you're a white male that lives in Wisconsin. I don't care if you're an African-American that lives in Compton, right? You both have a brain. Right. And I truly believe that what happens, what's happened in our world is that, you know, society has advanced. I mean, look at this. We're holding this interview right here in my home office. This is great. Right. And it's going to be broadcast out to multiple people. Society has evolved to the point where technology, you know, it's it's one and the same. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm on the road 180 days out of the year. I'm going to tell you that the quietest time in my life is when I'm walking through an airport. And you think, why is it quiet? Because you walk through an airport, there are tons of people. It used to be you sit five years ago, you sit next to somebody. They want to talk because you had nothing else to do or read right. a magazine. These days, you walk through an airport and everybody has their head down and is buried in their phone, their tablets, their computers, yeah. right? Even though our society has evolved to the point where technology is one and the same in terms of our interaction, the one thing that has not evolved is our brain. Our brain is still stuck in the days of our ancestors. And our brain is cropping out people in terms of, are they members of my in-group? Mm-hmm. If I'm part of my in-group, like we have, you know, we have so many shared experiences. We basically grew up together, right? right? So we're already members of our in-group. Your in-group is anybody who looks like you, talks like you, thinks like you. Therefore, they are you. I feel comfortable when I'm in, you know, when I'm in physical proximity with somebody who's just like me. Right. The issue comes in when I'm dealing with somebody who's a member of an out-group. An out-group is anybody who doesn't look like you, talk like you, think like you. Therefore, they're not you. So what we do in this diversity training is that we help people to understand what are the stories that are happening at a cognitive level. Because as soon as you start to understand your story, you start to be able to relate to other people. Because once I understand how I show up, now I have a better idea of how I am around you. Right. And the more interactions that I can have with you, the more I start to retool my brain to stop looking at you as a potential threat and to look at you as somebody who I go into a reward state with. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. So do you? Uh, how much training do you do in terms of working with adults who train young students because it seems like or from my understanding you mostly do uh corporate do a lot of corporate. training right do you do anything in the field of education or with you know groups that work with younger people you know we do um love to do it more uh our business is we do so many corporate engagements is ridiculous you know thank you god right, right? it keeps the lights on right <laughs> right but um, definitely love to get more involved in terms of dealing with the youth because I'll tell you, when you look at brain development, right, for – and it's true what they say that women mature at a faster rate. Girls mature at a faster rate than boys. Right. Our, a young man's brain is not fully developed until he's 24 or 25 years old. So imagine if we were able to get to those young people. And start talking to them about the real world in terms of what they're dealing with. But more importantly, helping them to understand who they are. Helping them to understand that I don't care if you're Asian. I don't care if you're Hispanic. I don't care if you're gay, straight, whatever the case might be. We all are living a life. We all are experiencing something. And over the course of our experiences, your brain is telling you something about the outside world. So imagine if we were able to get to these young people and to really help them to hone in on that. Because what I generally find is young people are oftentimes more open-minded than older people are. Right. Exactly. So how what what kind of recommendations would you give out there to uh you know that that educator who's been working for, you know, 20 some odd years in the sure. school system and they're struggling to reach their kids because maybe they work in a different community or kids from a different community come in to their school. How, what, 
what kind of uh, advice or what would you say to that person to help them figure out how to best work with that young person? Wonderful question. Something that we do a lot, and we have to do this quite often with corporate managers, is we all show up with preconceived notions. And what I generally find is if you can step outside of yourself to find a point of commonality. Right. Let's say you're a teacher and you're dealing with a problematic student. <clears throat> and this problematic student comes from a different culture than you come from, comes from a different background than you come from. There's something that the student enjoys. Find out what that thing is. Research yeah. it. And the first time, let's, you know, there's a young kid who I mentor. He loves Pokemon. I don't even know what the heck a Pokemon is, <laughs> right? This kid was about as difficult as you possibly could get. He would look at me and he goes, I don't know where you come from, but wherever you come from, go back, right? I'm like, man, I don't have to do this. I don't have to mentor you. I got my own kids, right? right? <laughs> but I kept pushing and I kept pushing. And I realized that he loved, poke. I think it's called Pokemon Go yeah, or something mm-hmm. where they walk around trying to find Pokemons. Yeah. And I sat down with him and he's just staring at me like, man, this is the biggest waste of my time. And I go, I can't believe I found, I think it was, I can't, I can't remember, Regita or something like that. Right. Yeah. I, Some Pokemon. I don't know him either. And the kid looks at me, he's like, what? And I go, man, I've been walking around for the past three hours with my cell phone trying to capture Pokemon and I only got four of them. You ever play that game? And I knew he did. Right. Yeah, I love that game. I was like, well, show me how many you got, because I guarantee you don't have more than the four I got. And next thing you know, this kid's showing me all his Pokemon. I'm not saying that we became best friends automatically, but there was a point of commonality because I stepped outside of myself to figure out what he wanted, Yeah. to figure out what he enjoys. I think it really comes down to empathy. And no, it's not possible to get along with everyone, but if there's a young person that you want to reach out to, there's a young person that you want to motivate, and more importantly, you want to educate. In the case of your educators, figure out what they need, and then give it to them. Yeah, and when when you uh, work in these corporate settings, I'm going to imagine that it's probably a lot similar to what you would find in an educational setting between the staff members. Right. And from what I'm hearing from you, is that finding that commonality, finding that something that you have in common that you can relate to that other person so you can build some rapport would help tremendously in those work relations, uh, you know, that go on between coworkers. Well, absolutely. I mean, one of the things, keep in mind, so if I'm on the road 180 days out of the year, I spend more time in the airport than I spend at home. Right. Right. So I'm consistently going into these environments where people don't know me and I'm standing in front of groups of people who you know, many of these trainings or many of these, you know, in terms of the other consulting we do, these meetings are mandatory. So they don't already, they don't want to be there in the first place. Right. And here I am, some outsider. They don't know me. They just know I'm a consultant. I come highly recommended. But they don't know what that means either. When I started my career, I would come in and I was so like, hey, I'm this, I'm that, I'm this, I'm that. Please be impressed by me because that was my own insecurity. Right. Because I didn't know if I was, I didn't even know if I was worthy enough to be standing in front of them. So I wanted them to be impressed. Well, I was turning people off because people don't want to hear about you. They want somebody who's going to listen to them. And so what I've encountered is, or what I've done in terms of my approach is, when I come into a, to a setting, and I'll give a little bit of my, my bio, but then I kind of make fun of myself, right? Like people mention the fact that I have three degrees. Yeah, that's cool, but that means that I wasn't working, and I was living off my parents. I was living off, <laughs> right. I was living off financial aid, right? Right. And I was basically a bum till I was 27 years old. And I had some fun. It makes people laugh, but once they see that I'm a real person, that's when the bonding starts to take place. Right. Well, what kind of uh, programs do you do as far as team building? Because I know that you know probably in a lot of the work, not just the diversity training, that team building plays a huge role in that. Right. Do you use a lot of team building exercises to help break the ice between, uh, you know, people that are having conflict? Yeah, I do. So one of the things that we do, especially in the beginning of a diversity training is, uh, let's say I come into a room. So we did diversity training about a month ago. We had like 500 people. You make the assumption that because people work for the same organization, that they all know each other. 
but they don't because people generally silo themselves according to their departments. Right. Right. So I'll have people stand up and I'll ask them, does everybody here know each other? And it's usually people sitting at the same tables, right, who are from the same department. So they're like, we know our we know our department, but we don't know the other departments. So then I'll say something to the fact of, I want you to look across the room. I want you to find somebody that you don't know. I want you to walk up to that person and introduce yourself. And then I want you to share something vulnerable about yourself. People are kind of looking at me like, vulnerable, right? right. And then I'll have some fun. And I'll say, I'll give you an example. This is what not to do in terms of sharing your vulnerability. And let's say I walk up to you. Hi, my name is Jason. Right? We'll shake hands. Hey. You give me your name. You say, my name is Demont. So, Demont, I know that we have to share something vulnerable. So I just need to let you know. I've been married to my best friend, Tiffany, for two years. It's been the best experience I've ever had in my life. And I'm so happy. And I've never experienced this level of happiness in my personal life, in our relationship. Scared I'm going to mess it up. Right? Yeah. So the guy's usually like, uh, <laughs> yeah, you probably will mess it up, right? 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 And, and I made a mistake because, you know, that's that's vulnerability. But uh, what I tell people is that's a level of vulnerability that you can share. Right. But what we often do as men is that we'll walk up to another man and be like, hey, my name's Jason. Man, you think the Cardinals will win today? Right. We we talk about crap. Right. right. All the time. Right. We talk about crap all the time. But what I do is when I get people to share their vulnerabilities, then they start to open up. And the next thing you know, people are talking so loud I can't get their attention when I'm trying to get them back in back in terms <laughs> of training. And then I'll ask them to find somebody else they don't know and to walk up to that person and share something vulnerable, but it cannot be the same vulnerable thing you share with the first person. Nice. So what I'm what I'm effectively what I'm trying to do effectively rather is to get them to the point where they're opening up because the more people start to open up with each other the less I stop looking at you as you know I stop looking at you as a potential rival or somebody who's out to get me and I start looking at you as a person cuz we just share something right right I like that and then I'm I'm hearing pretty much a theme in everything you talk about and that is that in order to build relationships in order to uh, create a diverse environment where it's not simply a bunch of people that look alike or do things differently. But when we talk about diversity, we want people to work together. Yes. Even though they have their diver- diverse uh, you know, qualities about them. Right. But the important thing is that if we can weave it together and figure out what commonalities that we have, we can create wonderful workplaces. We can create great classroom environments. Yes. We can create create great youth group environments and things of that nature. Hey, let's, be, let's be real. Yes, we are all diverse and we all come from, you know, we're all unique. Right. Right. The bottom line is this. If I'm doing a job, I want to do the best job that I possibly can so that I get paid, potentially move up or move out. Right. If I'm an employer, and I hire you to do the job, I want the best that you can give because the more productive you are, the more money I make. Exactly. Right? If I'm a teacher, I want to give you the best because I want a bunch of kids failing. Right. And if you're a student, for the most part, you're thinking, I want to get the best grade that I can so I can move on, move up, go to college, go to trade school, go do whatever I want to do. Right. Right? We're all the same from that perspective. Yeah. It's all the other human stuff that we're trying to figure out. But the bottom line is we all have a goal. It's just a matter of figuring out what that goal is. Yeah. So based on your experience, what did, what do you think is the biggest block? Because as you just described it and as, as I was able to piece together what you were talking about, yes, it seems very simple. Mm-hmm. What is the biggest block that you've noticed that prevents people from doing this very simple thing? The head. It's the story. I mean, if if you, Devon, if you want to start a riot right now, start talking politics. Yeah. Right. We have this thing. We have this thing, and it's again, we live in a time, a day and age in which we're more interconnected than we ever have been before. Mm-hmm. Right. 
mean, we were just talking about our class reunion. And had it not been for Facebook, I wouldn't have known that a class reunion was happening. Same with you. Right. Right. We're so interconnected. And we have, I think I have like 1,600, 1,627 friends, quote unquote friends. Friends, right. On Facebook, <laughs> right? But what's interesting is when I run into these people, like we can talk all day long on Facebook. It's a great conversation. We talk about sports. We talk about politics, whatever. Movies. All Movies. That. But then I run into these people in real life. It's crickets. We don't know what to talk about. Right. Right. We live in this day and age of uh, interconnectedness, but it's false interconnectedness. Because I truly believe that we are less connected than we ever have been before. People don't live. And you, you know, people used to live. My parents are from the South. Mm-hmm. My grandma, my grandfather migrated, you know, from the South with their other relatives. So they lived in neighborhoods of friends. They lived in neighborhoods of cousins, right? Right. That doesn't exist anymore. No. Right? So I think that we've lost our ability, you know, we've lost our tribe. Mm -hmm. We've lost the sense of uh, interdependence. And I think in that process, our brain is lost. Our brain is still trying to catch up. Right. And our brain's looking for people who are just like us and brain can't find it. So as a result, people are siloing themselves off. They're cutting themselves off. And I think that um, as a result, if you have a perspective and it's marginally different than my perspective, I'm done talking to you. Yeah. Yeah. It's because our brains are designed to keep us safe and to protect us. And when we see something that's different, like you said, your, your mind is already in... I got to protect myself. I got to survive. Absolutely. I'm going to cut that off. Absolutely. And it's, it, it is amazing, um, you know, just how as time moves on and things change, our brains are not always keeping up with it. And, you know, we find ourselves in these crazy situations. Right. Ladies and gentlemen, listening to the Always Believe Me You show on 21.6 The Net, uh, you can find us at www.216thenet.com. And there's a lot of great shows on there as well. Uh, Kicking off the week, we have on Mondays, Two Ball Guys and a Microphone with Tim, Coach Papa Stewart, Kent Deke Jones, and Rancher Ron. That's Monday from 6 to 9 a.m. Mondays from 9 to 10 a.m. Actually, Monday through Wednesday from 9 to 10 a.m., we have Pete Talks Jobs with Peter Galt. Monday evenings, 5 to 6 p.m., we have Let's Go Racing with Mike Babbitts. And then from 6 to 8 p.m. on Monday evenings, we have Slang and Hope Radio with Shay and Jess Sassano bringing you Recovery Nation and a show about helping pretty much anybody that feels hopeless. Tuesdays at noon, from noon to 1 p.m., we have Not Done Yet with Tom Sellers and Robbie Robinson. Tuesday evenings, 7 to 8 p.m., we have The Deep Dive with Nick Espinosa. That is a show about all things cybersecurity. On the Bump is our sports show that plays on Wednesday evenings from 7 to 9 p.m. with Young and Marshall. Thursday morning, kicking off the day from 6 to 7.30 a.m., we have Tim Coach Papa Stewart coming back to us solo with Freedom One. And then from 10.30 to 11.30 a.m., we have Beautifully Broken with Dawn Stewart, a support group for women. And from 4 to 5 p.m. on Thursdays, you have the Always Believe in You show hosted by yours truly, Damon K. Ross. And then Slang and Hope Radio comes back to us Thursday evenings from 7 to 8.30 p.m. with a view from the other side. And that, again, is with Shay and Jessica Sassano. All times are Central Standard Times, uh, but you can check out the website at any point in time and listen to a variety of shows as they will play on Shuffle. So, Jason, uh, what I would like to do now is talk a little bit more about specifically what you do. Sure. And then we want to go through the path of why you decided to do what you do, how you got there, the steps that a person would need to take, like whatever education or, uh, you know, just whatever a person would need to want to do what you do. Because, you know, we want to introduce to a lot of young people different career opportunities, different businesses. And so I think what you do is it's something that a lot of people probably don't know about, don't understand, maybe have never heard of. Mm-hmm. So tell us first what exactly it is you do with Greer Consulting, Inc., and then let's delve into the story of how you got there. Absolutely. So uh, maybe about 20% of my business is diversity training. 
Right. The other 80% of my business is I am uh, what they call a labor relations consultant, Okay. which is just a great way of saying that, uh, generally speaking, for companies who are facing off against some type of labor union, okay, where a labor union is seeking to organize their employees, I'm the guy that the company will bring in. I am a registered persuader at, you know, with the Department of Labor. I will come in and I'll meet with employees and educate them about both the pros and the cons of joining a labor union. Okay. The hope is, generally speaking, that, well, specifically speaking, that <laughs> the employees would consider voting no in right. the uh, secret ballot election through the National Labor Relations Board. So I've been doing that. I've been in the field of labor relations since 2002. Okay. Uh, it's been an incredible ride. Incredible ride. I've seen, I've touched businesses I never thought I'd touch. I've met employees I never thought I would meet. I've gone up against some of the biggest, baddest unions. Uh, it hasn't always been pleasurable, right? <laughs> I'm sure. But um, it's been it's been fascinating. So, uh, you know, another side of our business is we do what we call deep dives. Okay. Where um, I have a number of private equity clients who they will purchase a portfolio business. Mm-hmm. And I will come in and I will effectively come in. I'm a counselor by training. I have a bachelor's degree in social work, a master's degree in social work. Okay. Uh, bachelor's degree from Valparaiso University in Crusader. Crusader for life, Crusader, right? Crusader. <laughs> and, and a master's degree from Washington University in St. Louis. And a master's degree in human resources management with an emphasis on labor relations from the University of Illinois. So I will come in from the perspective of a counseling perspective in terms of talking to employees helping them to open up about some of the organizational challenges they're facing Mm -hmm. because companies will bring me in to understand what are the roadblocks. And if there's a roadblock, okay, now we need your help to identify what that roadblock is. And then we need your direct recommendations on what we need to do to break those roadblocks down. So I never thought that, you know, when I was, no, I thought I was going to be an attorney. When I was coming out of, uh, when I went to college, I went to college thinking, okay, I'm going to major in something. I had no idea what I was going to major right. in. Now that was going to be psychology. It was going to be business. Discovered social work because I loved it. Graduated and went to Valparaiso University's law school. Did not know that. A lot of people didn't because I only lasted a year. <laughs> okay. Right? I had no – honestly, I don't think I had a desire to be an attorney. Uh my father really wanted me to be an attorney because my cousin Lamont is a very successful attorney in Atlanta. Okay. Uh, and let's be real. My father knew it would be very difficult for me to take care of a family on a social worker salary. Mm-hmm. So he's like, at least get the law degree to back it up and go be an attorney, do all those things. So I'm watching. This is right around the time of, of the OJ trial, right? So right. this is about 96. Right. Man, I'm seeing Johnny Cochran. And these bad suits. <laughs> you know, he had that, you remember the big block cell phones? He had oh, yeah. the cell phone. Oh, and I'm yeah. like, that's what I want to be. Dude, I went to law school and was 22 when I went. And I was around people who were 30, 35, 40 years old. I'm 44 years old now. But that was old to me. Right. Right. And you're talking about people who are like their second or third careers. And they're like, what do you want to be? I'm like, an attorney. Okay, what kind of law do you want to practice? <laughs> it's like whatever Johnny Cochran's doing, right? <laughs> right. And my first semester, I did okay. Second semester, I stopped going to class. I discovered uh, uh, what they call Boone's Boone's Farm Wine, right? <laughs> right. The 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 apple flavor. I can't even remember what it was. Discovered that I'm partying, and I went to go work for a law firm that summer in Indianapolis. And my parents. Uh, I heard a knock at my door. I'll never forget this. I still remember this to this day. I heard a knock at my door at my apartment. I opened the doors on a Sunday morning. And there were my parents. I was like, Mom and Dad, what are you doing here? And I knew what they were there for. <laughs> like, son, you flunked out of law school. <laughs> we need to explore your options. And I'll never forget falling down the ground, crying. And then my mom asking me, why are you crying? You're the one who did this. Nobody, there was no conspiracy. Right. <laughs> there was nobody out to, to, you know, to keep you from going to class. You did this. 
it was in that moment when I was finally honest with my mom. I go, I hate law school. I'm only being an attorney because I think that's what's expected of me. I want to be a social worker. So I got accepted to um, Washington University's master's program, Mm -hmm. I think three weeks later, and went, graduated valedictorian in my class. Oh, nice. And got a job as a caseworker with DCFS, Department of Children and Family Services. And I had this notebook full of ideas on how I was going to cure poverty within one year. I forgot to mention I was a bit arrogant, right? (laughs) Dude, I think I lasted in social work four years, if that. It was brutal. Nobody wanted to hear my theories. Yeah, I can imagine. (laughs) Yeah, it was crazy. Been crazy ride. Hey, I want to ask you some, uh, just a part of your story. Um, And if you don't mind sharing about Anything. The experience that your dad, your mom and dad had when they moved up to Dubuque, right? Dubuque, Iowa, yeah. Did that play a role in why you decided to have a portion of your business in diversity? And can you tell us, tell the listeners what happened? Sure. And then my question is, did that play a role in why, even if it's only 20%, I can tell that that's a really significant part of, um, I love it. You know, the, what you really passion, what are passionate about within your business. Absolutely. So this is actually our senior year. Yeah. Um, I and I don't know if you remember me and my father have always been close. Yeah. My father was always up. We went to Lutheran high school North. Uh, my father at the time was a principal at Garfield elementary school, which is right up the street from uh, Lutheran North. So he was always on campus, right? Always there to make sure that I was doing what I need to be doing. Right. Right, because I guess he was like, if I'm paying all this money, boy, <laughs> you better graduate, right? So, um, my father got his PhD in educational psychology. So, my father decided that he wanted. My father always wanted to move up in central administration, and he was in the Normandy school system, and that was right around the time when Normandy was starting to experience some internal struggles mm-hmm. from an administrative standpoint. He knew he was not going to grow out of his role as being a principal. So he started throwing his resume out throughout the country. And if you remember anything about, we're talking about 92, 91, 92. 91, 92, yeah. You know, the hot topic around that time was affirmative action. Mm -hmm. So, you know, when my father put his resume out there, uh, all these school systems had a quota on the number of minority candidates that they at least interviewed. Not necessarily hired, but interviewed. Right. So my father's flying all over the country. And if you remember my father, you know, my father is, he's a ball of energy, yeah, charismatic. Yeah. You know, I want to say hi to my dad. He's 80 years old, still kicking it, right? He parties harder than I do, and I'm 44. <laughs> and my father kept getting the same rejection letter over and over and over again. Dr. Greer, we're impressed by your education. We're impressed by your commitment to kids. But unfortunately, we can't offer you a job because we need to see that you have experience educating other kids. Well, excuse me, if you know anything about the Normandy school system, mm-hmm. Normandy is, you know, 99.9% African-American. Right. And the, the other 0.01% is Hispanic, right? So other kids became code for white kids. Right. Now, there's one school system that decided to take a chance on my father. That was in uh, Dubuque, Iowa. Uh, they offered him a principalship at Irving Elementary School. And at that point, my parents had been married for about 30 years. And they made the determination that we're going to do, they were going to do a commuter marriage because uh, we were, you know, our senior year, there's no way they're going to take me right, to school. Right, we're seniors, right. And we moved my father up to Dubuque. And everything seemed like it was going great. But uh, what we didn't realize was our family was the first family to come to Dubuque under the constructive integration plan whereby they were going to bring over 100 black families into Dubuque over the course of 10 years. My father became the face of this, and the Greer family became the you know the face of this constructive integration plan, even though my mother and I were still in St. Louis. Right. The KKK, Knights of Coolidge Klan, they burned a, a couple crosses in protest of my family. Uh, you know, I got called the N-word so many times. My senior year is so funny, because if you had known us, when those people out who are who are watching this were, you know, seniors. Right. I had to prove to people I really am black. I know how I sound, but I really am black. Dude, right? You and me both, right? right? <laughs> you remember how it was, right? Yeah. And yet, 
I'm trying to prove to people that I'm not a sellout or whatever they were calling me or Oreo or whatever they're calling me. I'm dealing with that in high school. But outside high school, people don't realize that we're being harassed by the KKK. Right. Because I never talked about it. And I'm being called the N-word so many times. I'm actually, I was thinking about changing my middle name to the N-word just to, just to make it easy on people. Um, you know, and we sort of had our 15 minutes of fame. My mm-hmm. father was on Oprah. He was on Phil Donahue when he had a show. Yeah. Uh, we did, uh, as a family, we did 2020. And you can actually catch the clip on YouTube because they edited me out. They edited my mother out because all we did was argue the entire time. Because, Demond, this is not real to me. Right. I'm just thinking, man, I'm on TV. There's over 3 million girls across this country that are going to see me. You know what I'm saying? I, I, was, ex- I was excited. Right. I had no idea. I didn't care why we were there. Right. Right? I mean, I dealt with racism growing up, but not to this extent. Right, yeah. Right? And if you ever caught the unedited version of the 2020 special, You'll see my mom looking incredibly strong. You'll see my father looking incredibly strong. And you'll see me looking like, remember that movie Zoolander? Yeah, right? I never watched it. But yeah, I don't know worry about it. There, there's this look called the blue steel, right? And he just purses his lips and he looks real serious. And he's supposedly that's his sexy look. Well, that was my look because I'm trying to audition for, you know, I wanted an ABC after school special, <laughs> you know, all these things. And it wasn't real to me. What became real to me is when the KKK and protests of my family, because people felt like my family's bringing too much negative attention to the city of Dubuque, they held a Klan rally in downtown Dubuque, Iowa. Blessedly, only 70 people showed up, but you know, people burned public effigies of my mother, of me, of my father. Mm. They burned more crosses. And I'm only 18. I grew up in Bridgeton, Missouri, which Bridgeton is a small suburb right outside of the airport. Right. Where, you know, my life prior to that demand was sports, school, my neighborhood. I didn't, the only time I ever went downtown St. Louis was go to a Cardinals game. Mm-hmm. Right. I didn't know much about life other than getting off on of Lucas and Hunt, going to Luther North. And now all of a sudden, my face is being blasted across the nation. Nobody in our high school knows what's going on. And I'm having to deal with this all the while my father's in Dubuque, Iowa. My mother and I are still trying to deal with the aftermath of this. Mm. And I'm watching my parents' marriage. And blessedly, they stay together. But I'm watching the strain on their marriage. Mm-hmm. I can imagine. And it just, I guess that's just a long-winded way of saying that the reason why I do dedicate uh, a lot of my time to diversity training is because the only reason why people burn crosses in protest of my family and really in protest of my father is because they just didn't understand because it was a threat. Mm-hmm. I remember this man telling my father, you're here to take my job. And my father said, I have a PhD in educational psychology. What do you do? And he goes, well, I'm a construction worker. My father goes, I don't even know anything about construction, so why would I ever take your job? But the man's mind, it was forced integration mm-hmm. is a threat that's put me in a threat state. And I have to fight that which I don't understand. Right. 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 So yeah. So I, I would I always wondered that um you know when I found out what you did, like right. how big of a role that played. So so this happens when we're seniors in high school. Seniors in high school. So you go to college, end up going to law school, get out of law school, uh, start working in social work. Yes. Four years, you're like, nope. Okay, let me say it like this. I got my butt kicked in social work. <laughs> <laughs> let me just say that. Nobody wanted my theories, man. I was hurt. Okay. Was hurt. So then what What was the uh, kind of the turning point for you into going into another direction? Great question. So I pray I don't sound shallow when I say this. Right. Uh, on the deep end, okay, on the deep end, I was burned out. I was waking up every day feeling like I served absolutely no purpose as a caseworker. All I was doing is shuffling papers when I wanted to change the world. Mm-hmm. Right. On the shallow end, to mine, I couldn't even afford to take a girl out on a date. And 
I was actually contemplating getting a job as a Walmart greeter because I was thinking maybe I could make a little bit of something, right? So I could take a girl on a date. And I was watching some of my friends who I graduated undergrad with mm-hmm. who were getting, who were in business. They were doing what at the time seemed to be relatively well. And I knew that I wanted to, I wanted to make my mark on the world. Right. But also I had some student loans I had to pay back. So I decided to get more student loans and decided to go to school. <laughs> so I got a, um, I applied to uh, the University of Illinois and uh, got into the master's degree, uh, master's program. They used to call it the Institute. I'm not quite sure what they call it now. But it was uh, the School for Labor Industrial Relations. And my father was in human resources, so I figured that's what I was going to do as well because my father's my idol. Okay. And get into human resources, and I'm working at Quaker Oats in Danville, Illinois. Mm-hmm. And it was my first discovery of labor unions because at the Danville plant, they had the um, International Brotherhood of Teamsters represented the employees. I'm watching their power and their strength. And I'm like, man, and I'm thinking about, you know, growing up in the 70s, that's when, you know, because in St. Louis, we had this before all the car companies moved out. Then you had General Motors, you had Chrysler, you had Ford. Yeah. So it was nothing to walk down my street walk down my block and you see people driving by in their station wagons. You remember with the fake wood on the station wagons and they have bumper stickers that said union Mm -hmm. pride, union strong. Yeah. So that was my mentality that unions were a good thing. I decide that I wanted to go work for the national labor relations board, got offered a position, got offered blessedly a position here in St. Louis Mm -hmm. and graduated from, uh, with my master's and went to go work as a board agent. And I was a federal agent and I was the only one that was impressed by that because I didn't carry a gun. I just had a badge and some signs, right? <laughs> but it was during that process where I learned because I was, I was a junior board agent mm-hmm. and junior in terms of seniority. Uh, I think the person in front of me was, had been there for nine years. So basically I wasn't going to go anywhere. Right. But I had the opportunity, a wonderful opportunity to essentially negotiate between unions and companies. I fell in love with it. I, I mean, I love labor relations and I loved the tug of war that was mm-hmm. happening between the attorneys. I loved, uh, going to go conduct secret ballot elections, showing up Not always have, I was addicted to the X-Files. You remember with Fox Mulder and agents yeah. going, man, it could be 98 degrees outside. And I'm still showing up in a trench coat, just like Fox <laughs> Mulder, right? My suit, everything. And, I just knew that this is what I wanted to do. But as a board agent, it was fun, but it was limiting. Mm-hmm. And I came across a guy, and I'm not going to give him a shout out because I can't stand the guy. But I will always thank him for getting me involved in the consulting business. Came across a guy who was working at a casino, and he was their labor relations consultant. He, I like what he did, like how he did it, so I went to go work for him. And he uh, made me an offer. He goes, Jason, I will teach you everything I know. I'm going to put you on the road 22 days a month. I'm going to pay you $50,000. No bonuses, no benefits, no nothing. And he was true to his word. I was on the road 22 days a month, you know, hanging and banging, going up and down the highways. I've been to every city. I've driven through every small town. I am probably, at that time in my life, I could only afford Motel 6, so I am the only official gold card member of the Motel 6 VIP <laughs> club, right? <laughs> I have more Motel 6 you know, hotel points than anybody in recorded history. But it was through that that I learned this process. Mm-hmm. It was through that I learned how to be a labor relations consultant and uh, started my business, my official business in 2005, and we've been going strong ever since. Okay. So basically – it's almost like you were a business owner going through that process because if he wasn't paying any benefits, no bonuses, it's like you're just, you're working. Right. So you're pretty much on your own. So you were set up for that. Now, had you always had that entrepreneur's mind or did that come out of the situation that you were in? No, not at all. In fact, I remember telling my cousin, my cousin Colin, this is maybe two years before I left the board. 
remember telling my cousin Colin, I would make a terrible business owner because I didn't care about, I mean, I love business, but I didn't care about, I didn't think that I'd be capable of doing the grind. Mm -hmm. I didn't think I'd be capable of having the mentality of during the peak season, working hard, but during the off season or during the season, which you're not making any money, still grinding. Right. Right. It's like, I love getting paid every other week. I love having benefits. I love my office job. This is great. Two years later, I'm like, man, I want something different. So when the guy made me the offer, I still thought I was coming in as an employee. But then I realized that he was bringing me as a consultant because he did not want to pay for benefits. Mm-hmm. He didn't want the tax liabilities. I didn't know anything about this stuff. Right. Right. I got arrogant. I will fully admit that. I will tell people when I get it right and I will tell people when I get it wrong. I'm like, man, I can do this. This is easy. Right. So I left. At the time I was married, unfortunately at the time, right? <laughs> and <laughs> and um, my my uh, uh, ex-wife, uh, uh, we were pregnant. And I was like, man, I'm going to come home. I guarantee I'm going to make more money on my own than I'm making with this guy. People are going to love me. I mean, why wouldn't you love me? That was my attitude. Right. Man, eight months later. I'm a stay-at-home dad. <laughs> I'm rocking my baby every morning, every night, because you can be a business owner, but if you don't have any clients, you're really not a business owner. You're just a guy with a bunch of cards, right. right? A bunch of business cards. Right. And I realized that I can continue being arrogant, thinking people want me, or I could humble myself and realize that I had a lot more to learn about business. Mm-hmm. And the book that really was instrumental in, you know, for my formative years was Think and Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill. Yeah, that's a great book. I mean, I that became my unofficial Bible. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I can think about a number of times where I'm rocking my daughter Jada to sleep while I'm reading this book. And I started writing out what I wanted for my life. Started visualizing it like it was happening. Mm-hmm. And three months later, it happened. Now, it didn't happen exactly. I didn't have the Lamborghini. I didn't have all this. Right. But I got a client. But Right, exactly. And one client begat another client, begat another client, begat another client. But it was still a struggle because you might make $20,000 for an engagement. These are things I didn't understand. You might make $20,000 for an engagement, but a portion of that has to go to taxes. Yeah. You have to save a portion because you never know. You might work this month. But you might not work for another two or three more months. Mm-hmm. And next thing you know, I'm sitting around. I'm like, man, I'm making this money. This is great. I'm averaging $30,000 a month. I'm the man. And all of a sudden, I wasn't averaging nothing. <laughs> and I'm looking at my bank account. I'm like, where's my money? I'm seeing my kids walking around. You know, They got yeah. the new Xbox. They got the new PlayStation. We got the big screen TVs and all this stuff. I'm like, why didn't anybody tell me this? Mm-hmm. Right? Well, that's arrogance because arrogance says it's always going to be like this. Right. And it wasn't. So it's been an experience. How about that? Right. That's good. Well, that's a great lesson to learn because like you said, a lot of people, when they look at business opportunities or someone owning a business, all they see is the glamour, the good stuff, the everything's working out. Mm -hmm. They don't see those dark days. Right. Or those, uh, what'd you call them? Uh, the slim days or scrum days? Oh, man, you the, say? The, how about this? How about this? Those days where you don't think anybody likes you, but your mom and she might be lying. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just saying those, those days. Yeah. Right. So what was the most, what is the most rewarding thing about what you do? Oh my God. I'll say the lives that I touch, you know, the from the outside looking in, uh, labor unions will call a guy like me. They'll say I'm a union buster. Mm-hmm. Okay, I'll take that. I'd rather you call me union buster than some of the things people have called me. Right. But to this day, I still receive text messages. I get letters. I get cards from employees who've said, because of something that you said to me, this has changed my life. Mm-hmm. I can't tell you how rewarding it was for me to go back to um, one of the facilities I worked at. These two young folks came up to me, and I'm not going to give their names because I'm not going to embarrass them. And they said, because you connected us, now we're about to get married. Wow. Right? It's when we do these engagements to mine, we're not just coming in for the money. We're coming in because we're getting an opportunity to get to know people. 
and you spend enough time with people and they stop, they stop being employees that you're dealing with. Right. They end up being family members. Right. You know, I'll tell you that the most rewarding thing to me is I can look at my wife, Tiffany, the right wife, right? <laughs> the <laughs> current look, wife. Right, the current wife. <laughs> and I can look at my wife and say, because we met each other in college. Mm-hmm. And I can legitimately say to her, this entire journey, both the good and the bad, has been worth it. Because I ended up with you. I ended up with a business that I truly love. I'm making my own personal mark in the world. And it's all been worth it. Yeah. Yeah, that's... I, I like what you just said because there seems to be a theme that I keep bringing up by Zig Ziglar. Mm-hmm. And I know you are a fan of his as well, where he says... You can have almost anything you want in life if you can help enough other people get what they want. And, you know, to me, that's just one of the greatest things that you can embrace as a human being that's trying to do something great, that's trying to accomplish your goals, is helping other people. I mean, it's so vital. Uh, So thank you for uh, sharing that. And I got a couple more questions for you. Anything. Um, One of the last few questions is, what advice or what steps would you say a person would need to make to become a labor consultant, right? Workforce and consultant. Is it going through uh, the the channels to get into HR first mm-hmm. and going on, or is there a way to circumvent that? Great question. Uh, I'm a big fan of going through the federal government. So okay. you know. My role as a board agent prepared me for what I'm currently doing. Uh, but those jobs are few and far between. Okay. So uh, definitely, if you want to get in this field, definitely get HR experience. Uh, there are not a lot of people who are specializing in labor relations today. Mm-hmm. So as a result, those jobs are plentiful. If okay. you can get some experience as a labor relations intern to start out, if you're a young person, parlay that into a labor relations job. Mm-hmm. Look, my best advice, all right, so I can come up with a bunch of bullet points, but I'm going to give people what I think is my best advice. Okay. Humble yourself to do some crap jobs, right? Because if you're willing to do what other people are not willing to do, you'll eventually get to the point where you're doing things that other people can't do because they weren't willing to invest the time. They weren't willing to grind. You see, today, everybody wants to be rich. Yep. Everybody wants to be a star, right? But they don't want to put in the work to be rich. They don't want to put in the work to be a star. And I just had some fun with you in terms of my background. But Damon, when I was in college, I had like six internships. Mm-hmm. When I was in graduate school, both times, I had like five internships. I wasn't getting paid anything. But I was learning. Right. Right? When I was in grad school, when I was in undergrad, people were making fun of me because instead of partying, I'm studying. Mm-hmm. But here's what I recognize. Am I a smart guy? Sure. But I'm as, was I as smart as other people? No. I had to work at things. Right. And I never assumed that things were just going to come to me. As a labor relations consultant, look, I'm one of maybe five African Americans that are actually, that are working consi- you know, consistently. Mm-hmm. This is a field that has been predominated, you know, it's predominantly uh, white male. Uh, It's starting to grow more in terms of a Hispanic influence, right? But no one handed me anything. Even though I went to go work for that guy and he put me on the road 22 days a month, he didn't hand me anything. Right. Right? I don't see a lot of people who look like me. As a result, I I don't see that as something that's holding me back. I see that as an opportunity. Yeah, that's because good. when we talk about the employees that we deal with, you know, whether we're in a hotel, whether we're in a manufacturing site, mm-hmm. whether we're in a hospital, they're employees who look like me. Right. That makes me a commodity, but I can only be a commodity or be seen as a commodity if I'm out there. So I'm grinding. The grind that we do, yeah, we get paid when we do the engagement, but that's a client that maybe I was trying to romance for about seven months. 
Mm-hmm. I wasn't getting paid anything during the romance period. Right. When I say romance, I'm talking about you know LinkedIn connections, meetings, conversations, dinners that are on me. Right. right. Yeah, Just to grow. Exactly. I guess my biggest advice to anybody is if there's something that you want, within reason. If you're not good at math, don't tell anybody you want to be an astronaut. Right? right. Let's be real. But if there's something that you want, go get it. Who's going to stop you? Right. You. Everybody. Look, you know how when I know that I'm doing something right? Is when a bunch of naysayers come out of the woodwork to tell me I'm doing something wrong. If I know in my heart that this is the right move to make, if my wife has endorsed this, if I'm okay with God as it relates to this, that generally means that I'm about maybe that far away from my acres of diamonds. Right. Right? And my life is a testament to the fact that when you work hard, when you believe, and you stop listening to what other people have to think, mm-hmm. uh, what other people have to say, within reason, you can have anything you want. I'm a social worker. I'm a social worker by training. Right. There's no reason I should be a business owner. Right. But I'm a business owner because that's what I wanted, and I was willing to work. He's good, ladies and gentlemen. So you don't realize you just answered one of my final two questions. What's that? What advice would you give to people? And you laid it out perfectly, and that is be willing to do what other people are not willing to do. Be willing to do the things that are not romantic, that are not uh, safe necessarily, the things that are hard, the things that are not going to bring you the glory. Be willing to do those things, and you'll find yourself holding that trophy at the end of it all. Can I say something to that? Absolutely. As my wife told you, I'm a little long-winded, so I'm sorry. (laughs) No, bring it on. One of the things that frustrates me is when, so I speak at a number of, um, on college campuses all the time, Mm -hmm. and I'll speak to, you know, students who, you know, a lot of times are seniors who are getting ready to graduate Mm -hmm. and, or people in graduate school, and I always open it with, what do you want to do? What do you want to be? And they always give me the safe answers. They always want to do whatever their major is. They just want to get a job. Yep. They want to make some money because they got student loans and they want a piece of the American pie, right? And it angers me. And I let them know that angers me. Oh, your job when you go to college is not to come out to get a job. Your job when you go to college is to learn how to think. Because when you learn the critical thinking skills, more specifically, if I'm in school for four years, that's four years away from my mommy. That's four years away from my daddy, right? right. That's four years on my own, Demont. If the best that I can do when someone asks me, what do you want to do when you graduate, is to say, I want to be an accountant. I want to be an HR person. I'm going to look at you and say, you're full of garbage. What you should be saying, from my perspective, is I want to go out there and do whatever it is I want to do because I've learned how to think. More specifically, I've learned myself right. because I've spent time learning myself. And if I fail, I'm going to fail fast. I'm going to get back up and go at it again. I've had more failure than I've had successes. But blessedly, because of those failures, I learned how to be successful. Right. Absolutely. Ladies and gentlemen, you're listening to the Always Believing You show on 21.6 The Net. Hey, you know what's very interesting is I was on – with two ball guys and a microphone mm-hmm. a couple of weeks ago. And the topic was critical thinking. And it's a, it's funny you said that people coming out of college should be coming out with the ability to think. And that's right. not what happens. And, and I agree with you. And I remember telling the story about a college professor I had, Mr. Jim Metzer. Uh, may he rest in peace. But he was by far my favorite professor because – his purpose was to teach us how to think. Yes. So in all of his classes, he would give out you know, these reading assignments. So we were supposed to get the book and we're supposed to have these reading assignments, which I'm not ashamed to admit, I did not buy the book and I never read the reading assignments. <laughs> right. But when we got to the class and it was time to discuss, he wanted to know what we thought. So he would ask these questions and every single class period somebody would raise their hands and they would give this beautiful answer and he would say man that's good i'm glad you read the book 
but mm. I didn't ask you what the book says. I want to know what you think. Mm. And my my best friend and I pretty much dominated his classes, not because we wanted to, because we were willing to say what we thought, even if it didn't necessarily go with what everybody else was thinking yes. or fit was what was in the book. Wasn't afraid to share what I thought. And he loved to call on. He would like pick on us because he knew we weren't going to give him some canned answer. But we understood understood what he was doing. He wanted us to think when he would give us papers to do. He would always give you papers back. And if you had something on that on there that he didn't quite understand or he's like, hey, that's a great point. Can you expand on that? And he would allow you to expand your thought process to even get a better grade than you had on paper. Yes. You know, most people would just, if they got a decent grade, they would just take it or go, why does he do that? Why didn't he just grade the paper and, and tell us what we got it right or wrong. And the most telling thing, and I shared this again on, uh, when I was on two ball guys is we would always do the surveys at the end of the semester to say how the teacher did. And he used to drive me nuts because we sit in class and you hear people talking like, yeah, this his, I didn't like his class. He He's a terrible teacher. I mean, he didn't teach us anything. All he would do is ask us questions and ask us what we thought. That's the point. Exactly. <laughs> That's why you're in college. Exactly. To learn how to think, not just regurgitate something. So uh, I, I'm just uh, – excited that you gave that point. And again, I'm hoping that uh, you, you know, adults who are out listening, you caring adults are sharing these interviews with your students and with these young people you work with, because, you know, the information that they can receive uh, through these great people that I'm interviewing will not only help them in giving them uh, direction into these specific businesses, these specific careers, but it's also just great life lessons that are being taught. So Jason, again, I want to um, thank you. You know, again, I appreciate you, thank you opening up your home office, giving me the opportunity to come in and, uh, you know, just pick your brain a little bit and have you share with my audience and, you know, just uh, much continued success to you. Thank you, sir. Uh, you look, too. Look forward to uh, doing more in the future. And to all you listeners out there, appreciate you tuning in to the Always Believe in You show. And as I always say, keep striving, stay humble, and always believe in you. Till next time. (laughs) 